Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. Hello, Jack here. At Mostly Books Meets, we always strive for the best, but unfortunately tech isn't always on our side, and during the following recording we had some issues. Luckily, our guest, Eleanor Shearer, comes through crystal clear. You'll just have to forgive me for my less-than-the-best audio. Welcome to the Mostly Books Meets podcast. Today I'm speaking to debut author Eleanor Shearer. Eleanor's novel, River Sing Me Home, was published on the 19th of January, The story follows Rachel, who after escaping slavery goes on the search for her missing children. It is a beautiful reflection on family and on freedom. Jeanette Winterson called it a strong and beautiful novel that stares into the face of brutality and the heart of love. Eleanor, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thank you so much for having me. Our absolute pleasure. Now, how does it feel as a debut novelist? Of course, your book is out there in the world. We've had it in the shop. Actually, a customer heard me talking to another customer about your book the other day because I was reading it for the podcast and they were like, oh, where is that book? And they ended up buying it. So we've already sold one in the shop. Thank Um, you very much. (laughs) That's all right. That's all right. That's exactly what we're here for. But for you, you've spent a long time, I imagine, with this novel. And it sounds like with the story, which has sort of personal elements to you, this has been sort of a long time in the works, as many novels are. So how does it feel that it's now sort of out in the world? It feels incredibly surreal, but I think also, as you said, it's such a long time coming that I was talking to another writer friend of mine the other day and I had my launch party uh, last week, which was lovely. And then I woke up the next day and thought, I feel exactly the same, but in a good way, you know, as all life events are, you think you might wake up and all of your ills will be cured, all of your anxieties gone. And that's just not how it works. So I said, in a good way, I feel like my life has not changed. I feel quite steady about it. And she said, oh, when I had my debut published, I did feel like my life changed. But actually, it's the accumulation of those small moments over time. So it's not like the boundary between the book being published and not published feels, it does feel momentous, but it doesn't feel life-changing and actually when I look back at the last few years it's the sort of accomplishment of having finished the novel even when no one had read it it's the excitement of getting to say to my family or it's had an offering from a publisher it's the wonderful writers I've got to connect with through this journey it's like lots of little moments have made the thing feel wonderful rather than the one big thing that it feels like you're building up to actually when the launch came I realized ah I've already done all the the hard work to be able to celebrate this if that makes sense no that absolutely makes sense and I think everyone particularly you know people who sort of come to the shop maybe are not aware of exactly sort of how many steps there are in the process Mm -hmm. to a book being written to being published so I, I can imagine for yourself it sort of feels you know there's no one sort of you know yes there's a launch party and yes there's this day where the book comes out but actually particularly with proofs existing you know I'm sure Mm. you have many people you know reading it booksellers book reviewers reading it sort of before so it it kind of enters the world a bit earlier on really it kind of the moment you're sending it out to agents to publishers that's kind of I suppose it's kind of first outing outside of your kind of loyal (laughs) work of people you might sort of share work with yeah yeah absolutely And um, in the Mostly Books Meets podcast, we always talk to authors about the books that have inspired them, the books that they love, because as booksellers ourselves, 
you know that's what we kind of do as our, our job and that's how we get the right books into into people's hands and so sort of starting with childhood let's say you're a, a bookseller with us and someone comes in and they're looking for a children's book any children's book and they ask you to recommend you know one that you've always loved what book are you picking off the shelf what book are you bringing over I'm bringing over Anne of Green Gables by Ellen Montgomery. What I'd say about it to try and persuade someone to buy it is that it is completely transporting. I think I was read it as a child, so it, I have these wonderful memories of my mum doing all of the the voices and accents whilst reading this this tale. But it meant that I was too, almost too young to understand where exactly it was set. I just understood that it was set. It almost felt like a fantasy land to me. Okay. Um, the fact that it is in this magical place that uh, the orphan Anne goes to in Canada. And um, so that was the first thing that really appealed to me as a child, this sense of being let into a world that was so familiar, but so strange, both a different historical time and a different place. But also for any child that loves you know, magic, reading, imagination, the fact that the the heroine is so wonderfully imaginative and brings a sense of magic and imagination to all of the, the people that she meets. I think I loved that about her and identified very strongly with her when I was being read this book. So I have so many special memories of being of Anne of Green Gables and I would love other children of new generations to to pick it up and discover it. It's funny, it's one on the podcast we've had come up just a couple just a couple of times so I'm not saying don't worry I'm not sort of saying every author everyone does it Anne of Green Gables and interesting for me because I will fully admit I was not much of a reader as a child so actually fiction came for me a lot later so I, I haven't mm. read it but I feel oh. like I should do because so many people talk about it as very very formative and very inspiring and it's interesting I feel there must be, you know, you talk about the main character being, you know, that she has this kind of great imagination. It makes sense then that writer, people who are writers now mm. sort of go to that book as kind of one that's really, really inspired them. Yeah. Am I right in saying somewhere I saw that your parents were formerly actors? So, Yes. Yeah. I was, I was very lucky to grow up in this very kind of bohemian, creative family. So my parents were actors. That's actually how they met doing a show together. And then after they had kids, they kind of transitioned. So my dad ended up doing writing, journalism, freelance stuff. And my mum became a film and TV producer. But it was great for me in this journey to becoming a writer. You know, my, my godmother is a, a writer as well, actually. So I always knew that it was possible to make a life creatively and I think for so many people that is one of the biggest barriers to overcome just in terms of your own confidence in setting out to write something so I've always considered myself very fortunate in that regard but it did mean that I had a lot of great bedtime stories because like I say my parents would do all the voices <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was lucky also for that. <laughs> I was just about to say that's a pretty, you know, impressive way to receive bedtime stories sort of, you know, <laughs> with with voices, with, you know, that always makes it, uh, you know, so much more enjoyable. One thing that's interesting, speaking to other writers, I mean, it, obviously it depends on the, uh, you know, the individual, but you hear some writers kind of do really well with descriptions, but they maybe struggle with sort of dialogue. I don't mm. know, coming from a, a theatrical family, do you feel that help with it, you know, in terms of your own writing process with things like dialogue or, or with characters? Because obviously being able to sort of hear that character's voice in your head must be 
you know, such a kind of crucial element. Do you feel that helped in any way or is that, or was that not sort of relevant? No, it's such an interesting question because I actually think I am someone who struggles with dialogue and the writing that my dad's done. It's a bit of, um, as I say, kind of journalism and freelance stuff, but he has also written screenplays. So for him, he's writing in this medium that was almost entirely dialogue. So I, unfortunately, that gene has not been passed on to me. But the thing that did help me a lot, actually, is it was my dad who said to me, and I, you know, when you get given advice and you don't take it for ages, and then when you take it, it works so well, you're almost angry with yourself for not doing it earlier. And um, when I left university and was working, but was thinking, I've always wanted to be a writer. I really want to give this a go. wasn't really sure if I wanted to do nonfiction, fiction. And my mm. dad said, write every day and just build a habit of it. You have to almost treat it like a, a job. It's not, um, you can't just kind of wait for inspiration to strike. And I was sitting there thinking, oh, I'm sure inspiration will come along. Oh, I'm not really feeling it today. And then it was only when I started this uh, my first novel River Sing Me Home that I actually started writing every day and that was the only way for me personally that I could get the whole book and it worked so well for me that yeah I was grateful to my dad for providing that insight but also annoyed with myself that it had been about a year of faffing around before I actually took his advice. <laughs> There's nothing worse than you know I don't know hearing someone's advice and going mm, yes I don't know if that'll work for me I'm quite busy and then you do it and then oh uh, yeah it's um you know eating humble pie yeah well and and what was that process like for you because am I right you live between is it Ramsgate and London and yeah. um you know you have a, a a job outside of writing so how did you fit in this part this uh, creating River Sing Me Home yeah, so I wrote most of River Sing Me Home during uh, the lockdowns in 2020, where I had like many young people that were in London uh, gone back to live with my parents who are in Ramsgate on the coast. And um, I was very fortunate doing a job that allowed me to work from home. And I just thought to myself, I'm never going to have more free time than I do now. So if I don't try to write this book now, I'll know that, you know, time was not the excuse. And so that was what kind of kicked me into gear to start this process of writing every day and um as I said for, for me I think the thing I, I know lots of other writers that do not write in order they'll write kind of whatever scene they're feeling that day but for me I have to start to draft at the beginning and work until I get to the end and I was so worried about losing momentum or giving up that I set myself a manageable word count of 500 words every day. And then I literally did not take a single day off until I had a, a full draft. And that's including there was one day when we were out of lockdown and I, I, I think I drove to pick my partner up from Guildford, drove back. We got home at about midnight and I had to open my laptop and write those 500 words. I was so rigid about it. But for me, it really was. I was so sure that I would not be able to keep this momentum going if I didn't do it every day and make a real habit of it that I I stuck to my guns and that's what helped me to write the the first draft of the book. Yeah I, I'm amazed at that discipline I <laughs> after a long day of driving or sort of traveling around to decide no I must open la that laptop I mean did you find because it, it feels like the repetition of that the doing that every day I don't know almost becomes like a, a not a ceremony I, I don't know what word I'm trying to reach for but a, a like a ritual that you have, mm. to, you have to get into you know do you find that there's almost a certain point where not it doesn't necessarily get easier but you see a sort of a shift in how your mind's kind of working because it realizes oh I'm I'm doing this every day and so therefore kind of something has to be kind of ticking along in that region you know all the time yeah I think that's right I mean 
what I like about it, and I think it's a combination of doing it every day and actually setting myself a relatively manageable word count, is that I almost always finish a day's writing in the middle of a, a scene or a chapter. And so I kind of know what's going to happen next, even if I haven't exactly got the words for it. And so it's then in the back of your mind for the next 24 hours before you pick it up again. And I find that it it helps me avoid that dreaded writer's block because I'm never quite fully running out of steam. And I feel like if I worked more in fits and starts, you know, a longer word count, but then maybe took a, the weekends off or something, I would worry that, yeah, my mind would slip out of that habit of thinking about the book in, in, over the course of a day, almost all the time, just in the background. Um, so I I am a firm believer that everyone's process is, is different and what works for me won't work for everyone. But for me, what really helps is, as you say, that kind of the ritual, the habit, the ability to have it constantly there in in, in the background. Mm-hmm. And um, it's funny because I do, a, I, I, my day job is in public policy. So I'm often writing for my work. I'm writing reports, I'm writing articles, but what I enjoy most about drafting fiction is that it feels like a completely different muscle that I'm exercising. I can really do a full day of writing in one form and still come home and derive such pleasure from writing in this very different right. way. So that's quite nice as well. It, it does actually, although it's not always enjoyable, there are days where it is a slog. There are days where it's a, a joy as well. <laughs> I suppose having that, you know, that manageable 500 words per day is kind of a good way of it not becoming, you know, there are the difficult days, but mm. it's not becoming such a kind of, you know, oh, I have to do, I've still got a thousand, you know, 500 words to do before my daily, you know, word count is reached. I think quite quickly, not everyone, Many people, I know I certainly would, would give up very quickly. I would go, you know what, I can't deal with this. I'd throw my toys out the pram and go, <laughs> I can't, I can't do this. And so we'll go back to River Sing Me Home in in just a moment. Another book I'd like you to recommend is a book that you've read recently, either the last book that you've read or something that you've picked up recently that you you really enjoyed. Yeah, I'm going to go with the last book that I read that I actually finished. At, I won't say what hour of the early morning last night, but I, <laughs> I just had to read those final few chapters. And it is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which I'm sure needs no huge introduction from me. But I think sometimes the classics are classic for a reason. Mm. And this was a, um, a reread for me. I've read this book a number of times, but including at uh, GCSE when I was studying it at school. And I remember approaching it with a bit of apprehension because sometimes these old books are worthwhile, but a slog to get through. And, you know, you feel like it's almost like running a marathon. You finish the last page, you close the book and you think, I'm glad I did that, but God, it was hard. And um, Prime Prejudice is not like that at all. I find it so gripping, pacey. As I say, I I stayed up much longer than I intended to last night because I just really wanted to get to the end of it. And I just think Jane Austen is such a master of um, social relations and observations that are of her period, but also in a way timeless. You feel like all these characters you could meet anywhere. And actually, it's it's funny, part of what inspired me to pick it up again was that I watched um, Fire Island, the um, Pride and Prejudice retelling. It's a film, an American film that came out, I think, last year. And it's um, about uh, a group of gay men who are going to Fire Island, which is a very popular gay tourist spot in America. And it's a retelling of Pride and Prejudice. And I love when those are done well, those Jane Austen kind of modern twists like Clueless is another classic for me, that 
makes you realize how fresh the story mm-hmm. is and how it can constantly be adapted because these character archetypes are so recognizable. So yeah, I could honestly go on for hours about how brilliant Pride and Prejudice is, but that was the the last book that I read and I would recommend it to anyone that hasn't hasn't had the joy of reading it yet. You would, yeah, you would thrust it into many people's hands. Yes. <laughs> like this way. That's so basic. When you said The Fire Island, I thought, I've heard of that film and isn't that like, you know, I thought that's definitely a very famous gay resort or like a place in, in America. I was like, I've definitely, I've, I've had friends that have gone there <laughs> and I had not realised, I think I'd seen an advert for that film. I had not realised that it was a, a Pride, Pride prejudice. prejudice retelling. Oh, yeah. well, you've sold, I mean, we're on the podcast to talk about books, but. You know, <laughs> sold the film as well. <laughs> all media, all media is, you know, is valid and interesting. And yeah, I think you've sold me on Fire Island now as well. Because as you say, yeah, it's a real testament to Austin and the way she wrote. I remember once I, um, I'm sorry to any um, Dickens fans out there, but I tried to pick up Bleak House and I, I personally just couldn't get through it. I found the just the language I was just like I'm sure it's good but it's not it's not for me so and I decided I don't know why I was going through one of those phases where I thought oh, I'll pick up a classic mm. and I picked up Austin and it was Pride and Prejudice and it just reads so well like it's mm. just so clear and I think elegant is a good word for it I think it you know it, it does yeah. what it does it well it seems very natural I'm sure it didn't take Austin you know I'm sure Austin like any writer was kind of redrafting going through but it reads as if just, oh, well, these of course, these words would follow each other. They're just the kind of natural progression, if, if that makes any any sense. So I'm yeah. a fellow Austin stan, as I <laughs> would say these days. I think, yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, her stories are just fantastic. So, yes. So Jane Austen is yeah your most recent book that you would recommend. Yes, absolutely. Um, a good choice. And did you, uh, one thing I'm interested in, particularly with River Singley Home, um, it's set at a very sort of particular time, which is this um, plantation and, and some slaves are sort of being told, oh, you're free, but you're not free. And I think that element of um, what do they call it? An apprenticeship, the apprenticeships. Yeah. yeah. Apprenticeship, which um, I think for many readers, I think this period, they might have read books about, you know, sort of set during the slave trade or maybe about the sort of repercussions. But this particular period, mm. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but feels sort of not within fiction not particularly sort of well represented would would you agree with that or am I wrong yeah I would agree and it was a very deliberate choice not least because one of the big themes of the book is what it means to be free and so Mm. setting at this ambiguous time when you were free by law in the sense that you were no longer considered a slave but actually by law you also had to work for your former master without pay for another six years which to anyone seems like a, just another definition of slavery so mm. I always knew I wanted the book to be in this kind of grey zone and or, and explore more the the ambiguities of British abolition because I think not just in, in fiction but in our popular consciousness more generally there's lots that I think we don't know or don't know enough about in terms of of Caribbean slavery and its repercussions. And in particular, you know, the the book came out of this exhibition that I went to when I was a teenager, actually, called Making Freedom, which was put on by the, the Windrush Foundation. And the whole point of the exhibition was that it was trying to challenge this idea that freedom was something that was given to enslaved people in the Caribbean by benevolent white people like William Wilberforce. And that's not to say there were very many campaigners in, in Britain that worked hard at abolition, but one of the key catalysts was resistance by enslaved people. And that goes from things like the Haitian Revolution at the very upper end of, of resistance through to little everyday acts 
and um yeah i that the, the whole point of that exhibition that centering of the agency of uh, enslaved people in the Caribbean was something that I wanted to carry through into the book because I think that you're right in in our fiction and in our culture more generally we don't often see that that way that people in the Caribbean made freedom for themselves rather than it being something that they were just given. Yes, and you know, reading the book, it feels what it does so wonderfully well is kind of explore. I think you know you were talking about the kind of national consciousness. I think when slavery sort of talked about. It's talked about, oh, that bad thing that happened then, mm. but then was ended by this kind of magical piece of legislation or whatever. And I thought to read something that kind of actually, you know, dealt with that very sort of, you know, knotty period in terms of, you know, what was going on and kind of addresses that felt very refreshing. And I love the, I think it's in your note at the front of the the proof that I received that you say this is a book not about slavery, but about freedom. I think is really interesting as well about you know focusing on that on that element you know it, it, it is it is very important and you say that exhibition was you know kind of a a, a sort of a sparking you know moment mm. that you that you went to see uh, approaching reading the book or just in terms of your life sort of before you started writing you know were there any other sort of key kind of texts or or, or bits of research that you sort of came across that that influenced River Sing Me Home. Yes. So one big thing was that I, um, ironically, completely unrelated to the book or the, the idea that I had that I would one day write about these women in the Caribbean that we know really did go find their children, who um, I learned about at this exhibition when I was 16. So I had yeah. that idea for a novel since I was 16. And then unrelatedly ended up doing this master's in political theory, where I studied the legacy of slavery in the Caribbean and the case for reparations. And um, you know, I'm the, the granddaughter of uh, Windrush generation immigrants, which is why I've got this interest in Caribbean history. So I wasn't thinking of this novel when I set out to do that research and it involved fieldwork where I went to St. Lucia and Barbados, where I've got family and I was interviewing family members. I was interviewing historians and reparations activists. And it was only afterwards that I realised just how much of a kind of treasure trove of that research was in terms of being able to support this novel, because one of the things that came out of it was just how differently people spoke about and remembered slavery on the islands compared to the way that it is taught in Britain and um, really reinforcing that fact that people wanted to remember and reflect on resistance. You know, one of my mum's cousins uh, was telling us that very proudly that he lived on lands that used to be used by runaway slaves in St. Lucia. So really foregrounding the fact that people used to run away and yep. fight these brave battles on this ridge on his in his back garden. But also people were keen to stress the ambiguities of emancipation. And so mm. whether it was reflecting on the fact that it was slave owners who got compensated and not enslaved people themselves, or whether it was talking about the fact that not just in the apprenticeship period, but even afterwards in islands like Barbados, where they were so densely settled, that there wasn't really any land that wasn't being used by plantations. Right. People didn't really have a choice but to work on the plantations after they were freed. So you might be given a, a pittance wage, but again, what kind of freedom is that in terms of a positive freedom to do what you want with your life if your only choices are to just keep working in, in plantations? So people told me, all these different stories, whether it was kind of personal stories of family or more this sense of their own historical consciousness. And that all added to this sense that I was developing about what slavery in the islands would have been like and um, helped me write this this book about it afterwards. So, yeah, I'd say that, that 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 master's research that I did. And the other thing that came out of it that I wanted to bring in, into the book is that 
one of the big reasons I went out and did this field work, which is quite unusual for the the discipline that I was studying, political right. theory, which is a bit like philosophy, really, is that I really wanted to center the testimony of the people that had been affected, and I wanted to give them space to tell their own stories, and I wanted to carry that quality through into the the novel itself. You know, River Sing Me Home has quite a lot of side characters that might be in Rachel's life for only a chapter or two, but they all get a chance to give you a glimpse of their their, their life stories and almost this oral history quality to it, I guess, of mm. people getting to tell something on the page that hasn't been recorded in any other history books because, you know, these were people that often couldn't read and write and didn't get to to leave those physical traces behind that form part of the way that most of us learn history. So yeah, I'd say that that field work really inspired me and ended up being really useful when I came to write the novel. Yeah, it, it, it's funny because that links into another uh, sort of question or, or or thing I was going to put out there about the, you talk about the sort of the characters and kind of filling in, almost like filling in gaps that kind of written history has left out. Because of course, you know, particularly within the UK, the kind of the history of that abolition would have been written by you know the white abolition, uh, abolitionists and and therefore it's that particular kind of frame and how they wanted to kind of be perceived that we we see and yeah something that struck me reading the book was the sense of kind of bringing to life stories that as you say exist within families like the uh, you know in testimony but putting that into the page and and do you feel fiction is quite a good way of telling kind of forgotten stories or stories that have not traditionally been told Yes, absolutely. One of the wonderfully freeing things about fiction as opposed to history, you know, I, I before my master's, I did study history. So right. I consider myself to be a historian as well as a, a novelist, but the novel is so much more freer form to imagine into those those gaps that are left in, in the record and um, also really kind of engage people's curiosity and empathy in a different way. I think I... Um, when I was writing this book, one of my kind of writing heroes is is Andrea Levy, who wrote Small Island and The Long Song. And Small Island in particular, I think, is um, such a wonderful book and such an important cultural artefact for bringing the Windrush experience to wider British attention. And what I love about the book is, as someone with Caribbean heritage, I can connect to it so immediately. But actually, it's written with such warmth and empathy to the the British characters as well. And I know so many kind of white British friends who love the book as well. Mm. And so with that in my mind, that, that, that fiction does have this power to really draw attention to communities and stories that have been forgotten. I absolutely wanted to to honour that in, in River Sing Me Home as well. And hope I hope that people who read the novel come away with a, a greater knowledge, but also a greater kind of understanding and empathy for the things that people would have experienced. Mm. I mean, I will absolutely confess my um, ignorance to the apprenticeship element. Mm. And the first thing I did was really to get was was Googling mm. and going out there and, you know, and learning more. And, you know, I think, you know, fiction can do that. I think people obviously do love nonfiction and will pick up a nonfiction book. But I don't know, there's something about the emotional experience of reading that I think can just connect you more but give you that curiosity to go oh oh goodness I didn't know you know and then to kind of reach out into the the real world as it were and and gather that information yeah yeah absolutely and so um we're back in the bookshop now <laughs> um uh, and you're being asked to recommend um another book 
it's any book now it, you can mm-hmm. be it could be a children's book it could be anything but it's a book that for you has some sort of importance it's either you know the best book that you've ever read or or, or a book that you just you would recommend to anyone and that you think is just that you know the sort of the pinnacle of, of good storytelling Yes, uh, I do have a book that I'm quite evangelical about recommending to friends, to family. So uh, I came prepared. And that is Bark Skins by Annie Prue, who's an American author, probably best known for her novels, The Shipping News, and um, her collection of short stories, one of which is Brokeback Mountain that got turned into the, the very famous film. When I read Barkskins, I'd already read a couple of her other books, so I knew that I really loved her and loved her work. But Barkskins, for me, just took it onto another plane, and I—it's almost impossible for me to articulate how much I love this this book and love when someone in my life finally takes up my recommendation after constant badgering, and then we can discuss it. So the book is um, set in America and Canada, and it's a multi generational, sweeping epic that I guess in a sentence is about the destruction of the American forests. So it starts in the 16th century with a couple of indentured labourers from France who are brought over to help clear the pine forests in Canada. And then one of them ends up running away from his effectively, you know, servitude and um, makes a fortune for himself. And then his descendants that we follow become lumber merchants. So they are kind of complicit in the destruction of the forests. The other marries a Native American woman and then his children are Native Americans being displaced from their land and sort of the victims of the destruction. So the book is, I mean, Annie Prue is a phenomenal writer about the natural world and about climate and climate change. So it goes all the way up to the modern day and considers the full kind of implications of what's been done in terms of the destruction of nature. Uh, but she's also an incredible writer of character. One of the the challenges with the book, obviously, as with any multi-generational story, is that you're only with each generation for quite a small period of time um, on the page. But she can, in a couple of sentences, just conjure such a vivid image of a character and a vivid sense of them as a person. You're immediately appalled or entranced, depending on what she wants you to feel about them. And so I find some of the characters of this book that you might only meet for a chapter so memorable Mm. and yeah I just think this book changed the way that I think about what writing can do and it also changed the way that I think about historical fiction and actually is in many ways an inspiration for the the next book that I'm working on because one of the things I love about the novel is that it is predominantly set in America but it takes in lots of other landscapes so one of the 16th century characters goes to China on a trading mission or one of the Native American characters gets to visit New Zealand and I think that we learn history in these really siloed ways where you often are thinking, okay, I'm learning my British history. Maybe now I'm taking a module in American history. Now I'm doing my Latin American history. And you don't think about the way that places were still connected, even at Mm. quite distant times from the modern day. And I love a book that does connect those threads. And you suddenly think, yes, of course, why wouldn't an uh, 18th, 19th century Native American man travel on a ship to New Zealand and meet people over there? Mm. And um the novel I'm working on at the moment is set in Nova Scotia, but it's about a community of Jamaican runaway slaves that ended up exiled there. And again, it was just when I found out that that was something that actually happened, I thought I'd never in a million years have connected yes. Jamaica to Nova Scotia in Canada. So immediately I was kind of pulled in by that opportunity to do what Annie Prue does so well in her work and draw together all the threads of of different places and different times. 
and yeah tie them tie them together i suppose mm. in terms of places we can sometimes have almost a filmic view of them like we imagine mm. you know you talk about the next book you'll be writing we are talking about river singley home but it's always fun to talk about the next project as well <laughs> is um you know these um jamaican runaways you said that had ended up in nova scotia i think you know if you if you say certain words to people they will build a very sort of basic picture in their head kind of like a hollywood movie of what that yeah. might look like so anything that kind of like breaks through that and goes well actually you know that's just you know the tip of the iceberg there was a lot more going on there i think um is both mind expanding but as a reading experience is so exciting when you read that and it sounds like barkskins was a really like mm. exciting reading experience for you yes yeah absolutely yeah and that's what you know and when you're a bookseller those are the books that you end up I can imagine if you worked at Mostly Books, it would be one of the books that you have, like, a, we have a little review card underneath. Yes. That would be yours. <laughs> and you would be just every person. Have you read this? Have you read this? Yeah. Right. It does work. It does assistance <laughs> with the book. And if you're passionate about it, absolutely um, works. And so it does sound then with some of the books that you've mentioned, but particularly with Barkskins, you know, when when you're writing, do you have a kind of Obviously, you don't necessarily have like a single book in mind because it's your book and you're you're writing your book and you don't want it to be sort of too influenced. But were there kind of writers that you were, you know, that you took inspiration from or, you you know, that you were sort of reaching towards when you were creating your work? Yes, definitely. So I've already mentioned Andrea Levy and Annie yeah. Crew, And I think Hilary Mantel is probably the last mm. one that's really up there for me. Oh, and, and Toni Morrison as well. I shouldn't forget okay. because I think anyone who writes about... Black history is is in many ways standing on Toni Morrison's shoulders. She was doing it like no one else did, and um, yes, those are, those are kind of the top tier for me of authors who I've read a lot of their work. I am such a fan of what they do with their novels. I don't think all fiction needs to be socially conscious, but I want to write socially conscious fiction. So I think all of those are writers who, in different ways, are writing novels as a way to sort of change attitudes change minds and in mm. a really small way change the world I think there's a wonderful James Baldwin quote about how writing changes the world because if you can change someone's mind even a tiny bit then you've, ch you've mm. changed the world with your yes, yeah. work so yeah I, I very much look up to those writers and do find sort of returning to their books again and again and realizing that peeling back the layers of them and being able to you know Beloved by Toni Morrison, for example, is a book I've probably read three or four times now. And every time I get something different out of it, it really helps when you're putting together all the complex pieces of your own work to just appreciate how difficult it is to do it well. I think it, I find it comforting in a, in a strange way because, yes, in the middle of a, a draft when you think it's the worst thing that's ever been written and it's really <laughs> hard going, reminding that it's possible to come out the other side, it's possible to come out the other side with something good, mm. but also that it can't these are people who you know honed their craft over over decades and you have to put mm. the work in to to earn the reward I found that a comfort when I was working on my own novel yes I imagine uh, I don't know I could I could just imagine because in some ways it must be quite solitary you know when you sit down to you know write it I could imagine there's some maybe sort of dark's the wrong word but you know moments of being oh just not being able to see the end you know that mm. you're in the thick of it and uh, just wondering kind of where the end is so seeing those kind of finished works that was kind of like the light at the end of the tunnel like one day your book will be just as finished and you know yeah. bound and you know ready to go which it is right now it's, yes it's out it there <laughs> and if we're we're still staying in the bookshop 
But now the book that you're pulling off the shelf is your own. And if you were, you know, in a sort of role as author bookseller, handing that, you know, handing that over to a customer, you know, what would you tell them about this book? Yes. I know I mentioned before, but this novel is inspired by the the women in the Caribbean we know really did try to put their families back together again after the end of slavery. And I wanted to honour that bravery and make it more widely known because mm. one of the things that slavery was trying to do was destroy people's right to a family life, you know, mm. from being renamed when you were brought over from Africa to destroy that link with your ancestors through to the constant threat and reality of having your children taken away from you and mm. sold to different plantations or different islands. The fact that there were women who went through all that and said, no, I refuse to let my family stay broken and I'm going to put the pieces back together again was just so wonderful that I knew I had to write about it. So the novel comes from that. It also comes from sort of closer to home on a personal level, wanting to reflect with my protagonist, Rachel, the wonderful black women in my own life, like my mother and my grandmother and my step-grandmother and my aunt and really take the time to unpack the quite complex psychology of someone who has suffered so much you know Rachel has been on her own journey through enslavement but my in the modern day my my family have been there themselves the victims of racism in many ways but also coming out of that with so much love and hope and resilience because I think that's what I want to impress on anyone that I was trying to sell this novel to is that as you said earlier, it's not a novel about slavery, it's about what comes after. And although I don't want to shy away from how brutal slavery was and um, the long shadow that it casts over the book, but it's ultimately an uplifting story and it's a story about hope and it's a story about a mother's love and the length that she'll go to find her children. So I hope that when people hear about the kind of the one line pitch that they are able to know that there is that optimism at the the heart Mm -hmm. of the book, which I hope makes it a not just in a kind of unrelentingly bleak read, but a hopeful one as well. It's I can assure you it's not. It is for me, the overriding thing is is very much, you know, hope. And yes, just your your order, you know, and and you're saying it it came from that exhibition about these people who piece their family together. And it is, you know, you're awed by kind of Rachel's, you know, when still living in that kind of under the shadow of, you know, enslavement and the fear that comes with that the drive that, that that would have taken to bring your family, you know, together that's been so sort of brutally separated. It's almost hard to fathom, you know, mm. it's um, it's so amazing. And that really comes across in the book. And of course, some of the characters that Rachel meets, you know, are have found kind of freedom, you know, freedoms in their own way. It is Mama B, isn't it? Yes. That, yeah. that, yes, you know, it's one of these kind of, you know, the first person that she meets once, um, you know, she's sort of gone on this journey. And she's a kind of a brilliant like example of this kind of finding, you know, finding your own freedom. And and that, as you say, that resistance that you wanted to look at as, you know, the, uh, of enslaved peoples who themselves had, you know, brought about freedom as opposed mm. to kind of, you know, William Wilberforce <laughs> being the kind of sole, you know, the, yeah, the sole um, sort of creator of that. That, that really does come across um, in the book. You know, I'm sure you've from whether Goodreads, although they always say for authors, I hear many authors say, don't go on Goodreads. (laughs) But I'm sure, you know, have you, are you starting to connect with readers now? Are you sort of hearing back from readers through social media and things like that? Yeah, that has been one of the wonderful things about the the novel getting out there is getting to hear from people how it affected them. And it's funny Mm. you mentioned Mama B, because I think one of the 
things I've enjoyed is that a lot of people have said how much they love Rachel, which is, you know, wonderful to hear. And I love mm. her very, very much as well. But different people pick up on different kind of minor characters as their yes. favorite. And so I've actually really enjoyed people telling me which of the the side characters in the novel is their favorite and why and getting a slightly different answer every time. That's been really fun and uh, very gratifying that there's enough to each of them that people can find something mm. in each of the side characters to to love. So that's been wonderful. A good cast of characters, I think, <laughs> always makes a book enjoyable. And and because of Rachel's journey, obviously you have that great reason to bring her into contact with such a kind of, you know, a, a, a spectrum of um of people. Have any of people's um choices surprised you? Have you gone, oh really, that character? I don't know, or, or 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 because I suppose, you know, you in some way to a degree kind of must love all the characters that you not all of them that you create. Um, mm. There's some characters in here that would be very, very hard to love. But, you know, in terms of the ones that, you know, are kind of part of Rachel's journey in a kind of a positive way, mm. um, you know, did any, I don't know, did any of the choices surprise you? Had you gone, oh, I'd almost forgotten about that person? Or is that not how it how it works? Um, not quite. I did actually do an event recently uh, that was very special to do because it was with Arthur Torrington who's the head of the Windrush Foundation which is this oh, organization wow. okay. that put Amazing. on the exhibition all those years ago so it's um lovely to get to ch chat to him after all that time but um he asked about a moment in the book where Rachel is helped out by a beggar in Bridgetown and that's such a small moment I mean it really is yes. like a few sentences but I was so glad that he picked it out because what it is again don't want to give too much away but Rachel is um afraid of being seen in Bridgetown and this beggar on the street gives her his blanket and says, I think you need this more than I do. You can use it to cover yourself. And she's shocked that someone who has so little would help her. But it was important to me to show in times of adversity when it would be so easy to be incredibly individualistic and sort of mm. try just to survive yourself and not have this more expansive idea of survival that comes from helping others as well. That wasn't what people did. There was a sense of community. There was a sense of wanting to help each other out. Mm. So, yeah, that was very pleasing because it's such a tiny moment in the book. But actually, that moment clearly stuck with him enough for him to ask me about it in this event. So that's probably been so far the, the, the most minor of the minor characters yes, that someone's yeah, yeah. pulled out for comment. <laughs> but it is such a good point because the moment you said it, I thought, well, yes, because that has such a, you know, a repercussion in the way mm. that that beggar helps Rachel it goes beyond that one moment, that one interaction. Mm. It, it kind of goes. So that's a that's a very mm -hmm. good one to yeah to to kind of point out. And you use the word community, and I'm so glad because I had in my very sort of small brain way the uh, I just made a note of the kind of the words that the book brought to my mind, mm. and it was hope, strength, and then bond. And I remember thinking, what what do you mean by that? I was trying to think about you know the kind of family ties, but also kind of the people you just be on the way you know friendships yeah. those other and yeah thank you for saying because my brain was just I was just saying bond over and over again I was like <laughs> no, no there's a better word yeah community really comes across in in this book that kind of as you say people coming together in times of adversity when it might actually in some way you know benefit them more if they didn't if you know mm. in a very selfish way they could say no I'm you know it's about me surviving but there's a, a kind of you know a collective sort of want for survival and th you know thriving mm, mm, yeah absolutely um it's a a very oft repeated phrase but that 
the the no man is an island i really stand mm-hmm. by that and there's a point in the novel where uh rachel is helping a character who asks her you know why are you helping me i don't understand and she says something like um i took help when it was offered to me and you shouldn't take help if you're not prepared to give it when the time comes so this idea of kind of everyone's paying mm-hmm. it forward and small acts of kindness in the novel from one to another ripple outwards and then you end up with this yeah wider community of people that are all able to help each other exactly and i think in many ways that's a good note to end on river sing me home as i said earlier is out now it's available in the mostly bookshop and online but it's also available at your local bookshop or wherever you decide to get your books from it really is a wonderful book and i'm very happy to hear that you're on the second novel thank you so much for joining us on mostly books meets it's been a great pleasure thank you Thank you so much for having me. It's been delightful. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Happy reading.